Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Morullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a departure from what you would normally expect. I'm going to talk about a composer who's not really considered a composer of classical music. He's a ragtime composer. And I've mentioned him before. You know who the king of ragtime is, right? Scott Joplin, who lived from 1868 to 1917. Now, he's not considered a classical composer. Ragtime is a early form of jazz. It kind of combines the march style of a composer like John Philip Sousa with African-American folk music of the early 20th century. I attended three different colleges, one for my bachelor's, one for my master's, and one for the doctor in musical arts. And never in any of the classes that I took during that time did any professor ever mention Scott Joplin. Well, let's face it, his importance in music history does not come close to the great masters like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, Schubert, Stravinsky, and all the rest who I've talked about. Yet he, he is an important composer for American music, and he's above and beyond your normal everyday ragtime composer from that time. And we're going to talk about today why that is. What is it about Scott Joplin's music that makes it special and really elevates it to the realm of high art above and beyond what his contemporaries were composing? Now, just a short note about the term ragtime. Uh, the term ragtime refers to the ragged rhythms in ragtime, and that simply means syncopated rhythms. Now, what does that mean? Syncopated rhythms are jazz rhythms. Those are rhythms that are accenting weak parts of the beat. And when you accent weak parts of the beat, it offsets the regular pulse. So imagine the pulse is one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Well, every time I said a number, in other words, the pulse, that represents being on the beat. One, two, three, four. Everyone is on the beat. But if I start accenting rhythms off those numbers, those are called off beats, and then you get a syncopated rhythm, something like this. That rhythm that I just did, that didn't sound like a clock, right? It didn't sound like just a regular pulse. That's because it was syncopated. And syncopated rhythms can be in any type of music, not just jazz music. It could be in classical music. It could be in pop music. It could be in folk music. So it's not just common to jazz. There's a lot that goes into a particular style, not just the rhythms. I started taking piano lessons kind of late, at around the age of 13. And it wasn't long after that, maybe a couple of years after I started taking piano lessons, that I was completely transfixed with Scott Joplin's music. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school... I loved his music so much that I asked my parents to give me, as a birthday gift, a book of Scott Joplin's regs, a complete book of all his regs. That's not the kind of normal gift that a teenage boy asks for, but I did. You know, I was into the normal things, too, like Atari back then, video games. But I had fallen in love very quickly with the piano, and I really wanted to play those Scott Joplin pieces. They were tough for me because I had just started playing the piano, but I was pretty determined to learn them. And little by little, I did learn, not all of them, but I learned, I would say, around 15 to 20 of them. 
Now, part of the reason that I wanted to learn them is I had been listening to some very famous recordings by an artist named Joshua Rifkin. I don't know if you ever heard of Joshua Rifkin, but he's primarily known for his work as a musicologist. Matter of fact, he did a lot of research on Bach's music, in particular Bach's cantatas, which are religious works for chorus and orchestra. And he was famous for postulating that the choruses during Bach's time were only one singer per part. So whereas we think of a chorus as many singers per part, you know, many singers for the soprano part, many singers for the alto part, and so forth, uh, his idea was that during Bach's time, it was only one singer per part. It's a controversial thesis and one that has sparked a lot of debate, and we don't know if it's true, but he did back it up with some scholarship. It's not like he just woke up one morning and came up with that theory. Well, besides being a musicologist and also a conductor, Joshua Rifkin is a very good pianist. And one of the most famous recordings that he ever did was a bunch of recordings for the Nunsuch label of Scott Choplin's Rags. Now think about this. This is a very well-known musicologist, a Bach musicologist, that's taking the trouble to record a whole bunch of Scott Choplin's Rags. There's quite a wide gulf between Scott Joplin and Bach. But Joshua Rifkin did this for a reason, because he recognized the lyricism, the craftsmanship, the eloquence of these rags that really set it apart from your normal everyday rag by another composer. So being a musicologist, Joshua Rifkin recognized the qualities of these pieces. He understood that they were kind of the Mozartian equivalent of ragtime. And when I use the word lyrical, that's very true of Joplin's rags. When you think of the term ragtime, a lot of people think of a jaunty, rollicking, fast, dance-like piece. And a lot of rags are definitely like that. They're like dances. They're really fast marches. But with Scott Joplin, the majority of his rags are really lyrical pieces. They have a very singable quality. And they're not meant to be danced to. They're meant to be listened to as you would a Beethoven or a Mozart sonata. Joplin wrote at the beginning of pretty much every rag that he wrote, do not play this piece fast. It is never right to play ragtime fast. And he wrote that because other ragtime composers wanted their pieces to be played fast. Like I said, they're very lively, cheerful dances. But with Scott Joplin, there's a very unique lyricism and a finished quality that sets him apart from all his peers. So again, for a musicologist of Joshua Rifkin's caliber, to take the trouble to record pieces by Scott Joplin, that really says something. There's something special about Scott Joplin. Now, when Scott Joplin first started out, he was composing pretty conventional rags. One of his most famous rags is called the Maple Leaf Rag, which he composed in 1899, and it has your conventional umpa rhythm. The left hand is going... Oompa, oompa, like this. Now, the left-hand accompaniment can be doing other things. For instance, it could just be repeating a chord over and over again. But that's the basic texture of a ragtime piece. And I should also add that that kind of texture is found in many, many different types of music, not just ragtime. You can even find it in classical music. Now, to further illustrate this basic ragtime texture with a left-hand accompaniment, I'll play a recording of Joshua Rifkin playing 
the one rag that really launched Scott Joplin into the spotlight and made him famous, even made him the king of ragtime. And that's the rag I was just speaking of, the Maple Leaf Rag of 1899. And here's a little bit of the second theme, and you could really hear the umpa bass. The Maple Leaf Rag really has some memorable and unique tunes. Harmonically, it's not complicated. The chord progressions are pretty standard. But the novelty of invention is there. It really got a lot of people's attention. And also, you could hear the dance-like quality. Since this is an early piece, Scott Joplin had not yet developed the lyricism and beauty of phrase that characterizes his later pieces. Another piece that he wrote a little bit later on that actually does have some lyricism is The Entertainer. And the reason why a lot of you out there already know The Entertainer is because of the 1973 film The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford, which featured Scott Joplin's music, and the most famous piece featured in that movie was The Entertainer. The Entertainer actually was not that popular during Scott Joplin's time. Maple Leaf Rag had a lot more popularity. If you haven't seen The Sting, I highly recommend it. It has one of the most famous surprise endings in all movie history. Trust me on that. I'd like to focus on one of the regs that Scott Joplin wrote later in his career that's very unique in his oeuvre. It's called euphonic sounds. Now, euphonic means pleasing to the ear. And this is a very, very unique, different kind of rag. Scott Joplin calls it a syncopated novelty. And a novelty is the interaction between the left and the right hand. In other words, the texture. Scott Joplin, for a lot of this piece, abandons the oompa, kind of bass. Also, the form, the sequence of themes in this piece is a little bit different than his other rags. In the basic Scotch Joplin rag, the form is as follows. He has an A theme, which is repeated. Then he has a B theme, which is repeated. Then a lot of times he goes back to the A theme, except it's not repeated. And then you have a C and a D theme. There are variations of this scheme, but Many of his regs use that formal pattern. In euphonic sounds, he kind of does that, but he does more of what's called rondo form. Rondo form is a classical form, and it goes like this. A, B, A, C, A, where the A is the returning theme. Rondos always have a theme that keep returning, and it's always the A theme. So this is more of a classical form. Let's listen to Joshua Rifkin playing the beginning of euphonic sounds, and then we'll talk about why it's so different.
Now, I'm sure you could hear that was a different approach than Scott Joplin took in The Maple Leaf Reg and The Entertainer. It wasn't a, a simple ragtime bass that time. What we have here is the right hand playing this melody. And the left hand is playing this. Now that's not so much a ragtime texture that we're dealing with, it's more of a classical texture. In particular, I'm thinking of counterpoint. And if you've heard any of my previous episodes, I have spoken about counterpoint. Counterpoint is two or more rhythmically independent parts. And one of the great masters of counterpoint was Johann Sebastian Bach. His compositions are very difficult to play because of their contrapuntal texture. Somebody playing a fugue, for instance, has to deal with maybe two melodies on the right hand and another two melodies on the left hand. That's a four-voice fugue. And in euphonic sounds, that's what's happening, except it's two voices. The right hand is playing one melody, and the left hand, instead of just playing a simple umpa accompaniment, like you usually see in ragtime, the left hand is playing a second melody. So this is a contrapuntal texture. In other words, it's counterpoint. Now, one thing that remains the same with this piece, as it does with his earlier pieces, is the phrasing. Usually, Scott Joplin melodies are in 16-measure phrases, usually divided 8 plus 8. That's a standard question-and-answer type of phrasing, where a melody is divided equally into two different phrases. Like I said, usually a question phrase and an answer phrase. And for the most part, a lot of Scott Joplin's melodies fall into that category of usually eight measures and eight measures. Again, that's a generalization. There are some deviations, but for the most part, he sticks to that. So when you're writing a piece like a rag that conforms to this traditional procedure of phrasing, the idea is how do you make the melodic invention and the harmonic invention interesting and different? And Scott Joplin was quite a melodist. His melodies are very memorable and very beautiful in many of his rags. But another innovation is Joplin's sense of harmonic progression, and there is no better example than the second theme of euphonic sounds. What Joplin does in 16 measures, remember his melodies are usually 16 measures long, what he does harmonically is nothing short of amazing and very unique, not just for the ragtime style, but unique even for Joplin's own works. Let's first listen to Joshua Rifkin playing that second theme. following that, it repeats the second theme, just as the first theme was repeated. So let's talk about harmonically what's going on here, and you don't have to be a musical theorist to appreciate this. The beginning of that theme is in the original key of the piece, in the key of B-flat. Right after that, it goes into B minor. After that, it goes right into C minor.
After that, it goes into G minor. And then after that, it goes into D flat major. And then right after that, it goes back into the original key of B flat major. And I played the beginning of the repetition at the end of that excerpt. Now, what I just described is very unusual. Within that 16-measure framework that Scott Joplin always uses, he changed the key five times, then went back to the original key. That just doesn't happen. If you had asked another ragtime composer of that time, do you think he could compose a ragtime theme in 16 measures, change the key five times? He would have looked at you like he had 10 heads. When you're writing a ragtime piece and you write a theme, that theme is supposed to stay in the same key. I mean, you could use maybe some chromatic chords to juice it up, but you don't change the key. And change the key five times? That's crazy. But Joplin was quite a genius. He made it work. And I could sit down and show you theoretically why it works, but that would take quite a while. But believe me, there's nothing contrived about it. It, it just happens very naturally. Now, with that in mind, let's hear Joshua Rifkin play that theme one more time to appreciate it a little bit better. After we hear the second theme twice, he goes back to the first theme once, and then we get the third theme. Let's listen to that first. Remember when I was talking about the second theme, it started and ended in the key of the piece. The key of euphonic sounds is B-flat major. That theme started in B-flat major and also ended in B-flat major, but in between it changed the key five times. Well, in this third theme, he actually changes the key right at the beginning of the theme to D minor. Now, Scott Joplin does this very often. When he gets to his third theme, he likes to change the key. Uh, sometimes he even changes the key again with the fourth theme, or sometimes he goes back to the original key with the fourth theme. So there, there are variations to this. But what's different about this particular third theme is that he doesn't stay in D minor. He goes to F major. Now, D minor and F major are actually related, and that's an important word because these two keys are called relatives. Why are D minor and F major relatives? it's because they have the same key signature. When you're playing a piece, in order for you to know what key you're in, there's a key signature at the very beginning of the piece. And in this case, the key signature for D minor and F major is one flat. 
So you know when you're playing in those keys, you have to play a B flat because both keys have a B flat. So they're related, but it's unusual because usually Scott Joplin doesn't change the key in the middle of a theme. He keeps the theme in one key. So this is a little bit peculiar. Now, by the end of that third theme, he's in the key of F major, like I said, and that turns out to be a very convenient key because F happens to be the dominant of the original key of the piece, B flat. So in other words, he modulates to a key that represents the dominant of the home key of B flat. So he slides very smoothly into B flat and he ends the piece with the first theme again. Remember I said that the form of the piece was rondo, A, B, A, C, and then A at the end. And then he has a little codetta at the end. If you get a chance, listen to the entire piece, and I recommend Joshua Rifkin, because out of all the recordings I've ever heard of Scott Joplin, he really gets it right. He gets the tempo right. He's not just a great piano player, but remember, every rag that Scott Joplin wrote, pretty much every one he wrote, he wrote, Please do not play this piece fast. It is never right to play ragtime fast. So Joshua Rifkin is historically correct. He plays it at the right tempo. Too often when people play Scott Joplin regs, they rush. They just go way too fast. If you really like Scott Joplin's music in general, I recommend listening to some of his other regs. There are so many good ones, but I'll just give you a short list of some of my favorites. Gladiolus reg, pineapple reg, Scott Joplin's new reg, and yes, his name is actually in the title. That's a very upbeat and very interesting reg. Magnetic reg, it's one of the last ones that he wrote. Fig leaf reg, and probably one of his most beautiful lyrical pieces is Solace, a Mexican serenade. And that one was also featured in the movie The Sting. And if you want a taste of Scott Joplin's humor, listen to the stop time reg, where the pianist is directed to stomp his foot throughout the entire piece really interesting. A lot of fun to play and a lot of fun to listen to. So as I was talking about in the beginning of this episode, if you read a text on classical music or if you take a class at a college on classical music, it's kind of unlikely that they're going to mention Scott Joplin because he's not considered a classical music composer. But then if you go back to episode one of season one, I was talking about the definition of classical music and I was speaking about a lot of different opinions on that subject. And what I concluded at the end of that discussion is that anything considered classical music is a work of art that survives the test of time. It has the kind of timeless quality that says something very unique and very special, such that it survives generation after generation, and people love to listen to it and write about it and perform it hundreds of years after it's composed in some cases, and I know this kind of music is always going to be around long after we're gone. So in that sense, we don't have to limit the category of classical music to those very serious masterworks that we might see at Lincoln Center, like a big symphony or a concerto or an opera. It's also the little pieces. It's, it's also the little popular pieces, too. And when I say popular music, remember, popular music can be found in every historical era. Mozart wrote popular music, Beethoven wrote popular music, Brahms and Elgar and Rossini wrote popular music, and Dvorak, as did Leroy Anderson, right, Sleigh Ride, and Hoagie Carmichael, one of the greatest songwriters ever. And how about the Beatles? You can't tell me that we won't be listening to the Beatles 100, 200 years into the future. So for me, it's the timeless quality 
that defines a classic. Scott Joplin is one of those composers. It might not be categorized as classical music, but I think he wrote classics. And if you want to hear more classics, tune in next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.